as you juxtapose those two, the great sufferings of Jesus prophesied in Psalm 22 with those beautiful hymns we heard on the bagpipes, what wondrous love is this. It's quite an amazing thing, isn't it, that Jesus Christ suffered all that, that we could rejoice tonight and count this as Good Friday. Let's turn back to the gospel according to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, we'll pick it up at verse 21. I like to draw your attention to one verse in particular this evening about the darkness that encompassed the land as Jesus died on the cross. Mark 15 at verse 21, we read on in this inspired, God-inspired narrative. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to, to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on him from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the last, and of Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem." Well, in the scripture reading there, the verse we'd like to meditate on tonight is verse 33. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
Should we bow before our God and ask for his blessing? Father in heaven, who loved the world and so gave your only begotten Son, we acknowledge and marvel at your mercy. We praise you, O God, for such a Redeemer. And on this occasion, we think about our sin for which Jesus died. We acknowledge, O God, that ours is the guilt, but yours the forgiveness. Ours the condemnation, but yours the gift of justification. Ours the bondage. And yet, the freedom of adoption through Jesus Christ has now been given. Heavenly Father, would you minister to us tonight by your word? We thank you for the songs that we could sing and hear, sung and played tonight. We thank you for the music of your church, that there is a rejoicing, even in the face of death, for through Christ's death we live, now and forever. God, visit us and strengthen us by your word. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. And if this gospel message has not been heard by any of us in the depths of our hearts, if we have not come to fall upon the Savior and adore his name, might it be even this evening, O God, that you would draw us near by the power of your Spirit. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. The congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sufferings of our Savior can be divided roughly in half, the sufferings on the cross of Jesus, the first three hours and then the second three hours. We understand that Christ was crucified at nine o'clock in the morning, and from 9 a.m. to noon, Jesus suffered under the sunlight. And during that time, there's a great activity around the cross, activity of men, Romans nailed Jesus to the cross. The people who passed by blasphemed him and mocked him. The scribes and chief priests joined in that ridicule. Even the thieves on the cross on either side of Jesus reviled him. Jesus was crucified, and Jesus suffered under the mockery of hell from nine to noon. From a human perspective, somebody that would have been there watching this, everything that happened up to this point in the first three hours might not have seemed very unusual at all. It was the typical Roman execution by way of the cross. It was the typical verbal abuse that went on. But at noon, something happens that's dramatic, and no one can deny it, because at noon, it goes dark. The land goes dark. Something very unusual takes place, something that can't be explained by any natural phenomena, something that's a divine intervention of God, an immediate action that should arrest the attention of everyone there as the sky goes dark. And now Jesus Christ is not the focus of the abuse of men, but but he hangs in darkness alone before the face of the great judge. And in this, he suffers the darkness of God's wrath and curse. And tonight we want to see that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered that that outer darkness to bring us in to the everlasting light. Mark does not pause after he tells us that the sky went dark to explain to us what that means or what's happening. But if we interpret verse 33 in the context of the gospel, Mark, and in the context really of the whole of scriptures, I think it compels us to say something in relation to this darkness, something in relation to the first day, something in relationship to the last day, 
and something in relationship to the everlasting day because we're told in Revelation that in the New Jerusalem, it's always daytime. It's never night. And so I'd have you look at three points this evening. You'll find them printed on the back of the bulletin if you want to follow there. But first of all, let's notice that the gift of the first day is confiscated. The gift of the first day of creation. There's something very special about light, right? The first gift of God to his world. You remember how, how Genesis goes, that, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then verse 2 tells us that, that there was this, this formless matter, and there was darkness, and then Genesis 1-3 says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. First gift of God to the world he was making. It became the foundation for life, Right? Plant life needs sun, we know. Animal life needs sun. Human flourishing needs sunlight. It's, it's beneath the sun of God that we live. Every day the sun rises, we're so glad. And even for us in Oregon who often complain that we don't see the sun for weeks or something, you know, it's not completely true. We may not see the sun, but we enjoy its light and its warmth, right? Or we wouldn't live. We're thankful for light. Light makes possible work and play, life and fellowship. In light, we see one another's faces and have communion. And when we do see the sun, as it were, then our hearts are cheered and we feel so blessed to live under the radiance of the smile of God the Creator. And it cheers our hearts. God made the sun. God made the sun to rule the day. The sun witnesses to God's power. The sun witnesses to God's love and mercies. Remember Psalm 19 as it opens up talking in the first half about general revelation. talks about the sun. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. There's no speech. There's no place where the voice of God is not heard through creation. And then it has this wonderful imagery to describe the fiery ball in the sky. It says, in them he has set a tent for the sun the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Maybe you remember that rendition of Psalm 19 that was in our old songbook. The sun with royal splendor goes forth to chant thy praise. The sun is this glorious testimony to God's power and to God's goodness. God speaks through the shining of the sun. What a glorious power to create this burning ball of gases so enormous that its rays reach to the earth to warm it and enlighten it. What a loving God to sustain these brilliant beams to bring us, to bring us life. And you know, even after we sinned in the garden and rebelled, the sun remained. In fact, somebody has called Sunlight, the very first mercy following the fall into sin, the very first mercy that the sun kept shining. In fact, Jesus proclaimed, you recall, that, that God is such a good God that he causes his sun to shine upon the righteous and the wicked, even the reprobate, even those who will never enter heaven above live in this life beneath the brilliance and the warmth of God's Son. It's the privilege even of sinners. The sunshine causes the crops to grow. It gives our bodies health and vitamin D. It affects our sleep cycles. It keeps us sane. 
Think of people that have been imprisoned in deep, dark dungeons or the like and not seeing any light, begin to go crazy. And so the Son testifies. God speaks in the Son. But now Mark shows us in his gospel that God also speaks when he takes the Son away, when all goes dark. Think about it tonight. What does it mean when the Son of God, for whom the Son was made, and by whose word the Son is sustained, what does it mean when the sun turns away from him and will not shine upon him. We know that when Christ was born at midnight, it became light with the glory of the angels. But now as Christ hangs on the cross at noon, when the sun's at its highest point, it goes dark over our Lord Jesus. But the one who called light into existence is now smothered in darkness. Sometimes we're in a room and somebody walks out and turns the lights off on us. Maybe a kid as a joke, or maybe somebody forgot we're in the room and we're insulted, we're bothered, we're annoyed. Hey, turn the light on. But what about when the creator of light has the light shut off on him? Well, for one thing, it's a reminder, isn't it, that that all the so-called natural gifts, the gifts of creation, are undeserved by us as God's people. Everyone standing at the cross should should have felt that reality. When the sun goes black, we don't deserve sunbeams. By nature, we deserve to be stripped of every blessing under heaven. Every blessing under heaven down to the very first gift of God at creation, the gift of light. And we we should never flatter ourselves and think, I deserve better. In our, our Bible study this week, those of us who are studying Ecclesiastes are Our study book quoted a writer who said, This was the nerve the serpent touched in Eden to make even paradise appear an insult. Adam and Eve, led by the deceit of the devil, thought paradise was an insult. We deserve better. And how often don't we tend to think in those terms as sinful people? The reality is, however, we deserve nothing. In fact, the sun disappears, proves it. Our sin deserves the loss of all things. You remember that darkness here at the cross? This is not the first darkness in the Bible. In fact, this is Passover time when Jesus dies, right? This is, this is the Passover season. Everyone's in Jerusalem for this annual feast. And you remember the origin of the Passover began in Egypt, right? When the angel of death would come to destroy the firstborn of Egypt, but pass over the Israelite homes that were clothed in blood. But the last plague, the ninth plague, preceding the death of the firstborn, was the plague of darkness. God, who was working to strip away all the creation blessings from Egypt, he affected their water supply, he He took away their health. He gave them boils. He destroyed their crops. And then God takes away even light from them, right? And and the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. Darkness so thick, a darkness so profound that they they could feel it. This is the darkness now that that enshrouds the Lord Jesus Christ, and he feels it. Jesus Christ, who interprets everything that's happening in the light of God's word, so much so that he, he, he in this horrendous suffering, can, can cry out with the language of Psalm 22. It shows us Christ interprets his whole life in the light of Scripture. He surely knew 
what darkness meant. He knew all about the darkness of Egypt. And he knew that God was saying to him, I'm stripping away from you every blessing. Every blessing. I have a book by a Dutch reform minister who was put into a Nazi concentration camp. And he describes the the ugliness of the loss of everything that goes on inside Dachau. How they strip you of all dignity, shave your head, make you a number, turn you into a slave. And he labors to describe the loss of everything, that you have no past. It doesn't matter if you had a wife or children, no longer. It doesn't matter if you used to be an engineer or you know, be this or that, or be cultured, or have these accomplishments. doesn't matter now. Don't even speak of it. You'll be mocked. You have no past. You're a slave. And then he talks about how you have no future. You have no future. They're just grinding you into dust until finally you go up the chimney of the crematorium. Your life is taken from you. You have no rights. You don't have a right to freedom. You don't have a right to sit down. When, when you're not doing meaningless work, you have to keep moving, keep walking, or they'll beat you. You have no right to food, no right to clothes, no right even to think. Once he said to someone, a superior, he said, well, I think, and the guy beat him for thinking. Every blessing stripped. We forfeited all rights. Now, no human has a right to do that to another human. But before the face of God, we deserve truly nothing. Darkness. Now, when the darkness came over Egypt, you recall that that the Egyptians didn't leave their place from three days. It was so dark, they didn't move. But among the Israelites, there was light. God distinguished his people from the world. But here, at the cross, there's darkness over the whole land. Now, the commentators will debate, is it darkness over just Judah? Is it darkness over the whole world? And so forth. But in any case, it's certainly darkness over Judea, the land of the church. Here, darkness falls upon the church. And God is reminding us that we all deserve this darkness. We all deserve to be stripped of every blessing. And yet, who is it that hangs under this darkness but our Lord Jesus. He who has rights to everything, Son of God, eternal, stripped of everything on earth. He's the creator of everything, the giver of every good gift, stripped of everything. He's stripped of his clothes and stripped of his dignity. He's stripped of his family and friends. He hangs all alone. He's he's stripped of comfort food. He's, He's stripped of even the sunlight. There is not an ounce of comfort remaining. He is denied the light. And yet that's not the end, is it? It's not just that he's denied all the blessings of creation, but he's also brought under the curse. And that's the other thing. If we see relating to the first day of creation that the light is removed, we also have to relate this death of Jesus to the last day of the world, the day of judgment. And so consider the second point, not just the gift of the first day is confiscated or removed, but but the judgment of the last day is now imposed upon Christ, inflicted on him. That, that the ninth plague of darkness in Egypt led to the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh, but now the darkness is leading to what? Well, it's God's own son who's on the cross. 
So the blood of the Passover lamb preserved God's people for centuries, didn't it? It was a, a temporary covering awaiting the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And now here he is. But in order to be for us the blood that saves us from the angel of death, the suffering has to become more severe, and so the sky goes dark, and Jesus hangs before the curse of God to be isolated, to be desolated, to be judged by God. And this, this outward darkness is a symbol, isn't it? In the Bible, darkness is a symbol of separation from God, who is light and whom there is no darkness at all. In fact, you recall that in Christ's ministry, he used a peculiar expression to describe the misery of eternal hell. It was the expression outer darkness. Christ spoke of those who be cast into outer darkness, where there be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. That's how he described the eternal torment, where the worm never dies and the fires never quenched. Outer darkness. And now Christ is being plunged himself into outer darkness. He's banished from the face of God. Sometimes people like to dwell upon all the the physical details of the cross and go far beyond what Scripture cares to do in detailing the horrendous physical pain. Or or sometimes the the filmmakers, they want to portray the, the grisly physical realities of the cross. The Bible doesn't spend so long detailing that, does it? Because actually... The physical sufferings, as horrendous as they were, are far smaller than the invisible eternity of hell that Jesus is suffering. And that is the judgment of the last day. I don't know if you recall, but throughout the prophets, the day of the Lord, the coming day of judgment, is spoken of in terms of the loss of sunlight Joel chapter 2 says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark. For the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Who can endure it? Isaiah 13 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. And Amos chapter 8 speaks of judgment like this. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon. The sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like morning for an only sun. And so Jesus, when he spoke of end times in Matthew 24, Jesus also then used that language of the prophet. He said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, Jesus said. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear. The Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great majesty. And so what does all this signal, brothers and sisters? But it signals that, that not just the, the blessing of the first day is lost, but, but the curse, the judgment of the final day now is breaking in upon Jesus as he hangs on the cross That day that's coming, the day of God's wrath, has begun now at the cross of Jesus and falls upon him. The end of history bears down upon our Savior as our substitute in our place. This is a wonder that Christ should suffer this, right? That he should hang there on the cross and not pull himself out. That he who owns the Son should 
Well, you remember Joshua. Joshua prayed that the sun would stand still, and it did. But, but Christ, in a way, prays that the sun will remain dark, and it does. He is willing to suffer. The second Joshua. And he's willing to do that as our substitute. Remember those beautiful words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become in him the righteousness of God. Or Galatians, that Christ became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And so Christ here is being cast into the abyss of outer darkness, that day of God's wrath is falling upon him, and the Roman instrument of torture, the cross, is, well, someone has gone so far as to say it's mere child's play compared to the eternal hell of God that comes for Jesus. He suffers, of course, as the innocent one. He doesn't become sinful. He never could be. But he suffers as the sin bearer in our stead, taking our place, suffering the wrath that we deserved. As we look at the cross, we see a spot with our name on it, don't we? Let's look at the cross. We, we see that was what I was appointed for me on the last day if Christ had not come for me. The day of judgment, the day of wrath, the day of reckoning, the day of darkness. From nine to noon, Jesus suffers in the light and men taunt him. But from noon to three, Christ suffers in the darkness. And the wrath of God is fully poured out upon him for our sins. And yet, what does that mean, to suffer the wrath of God, to suffer hell? Well, there's a veil that remains over our eyes. We we don't know what it means to suffer hell, do we? We wouldn't know what it was to suffer hell unless we'd been to hell. And then even if we'd been to hell, we wouldn't know hell as Christ suffers it because we would not go to hell as Christ goes to hell as a righteous person, as one who loves his Father most perfectly, the one who delights in all holiness and abhors all sin. To suffer hell as Christ suffered hell as the righteous one in the most horrendous place is a mystery beyond what we will ever know. But we get a glimpse as we hear Christ crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's enduring the covenant curse to be forsaken by God or abandoned by God. The eternal darkness of God's desertion. How horrible our sin must be. That God, rather than just sweeping our sin away, would instead punish his own beloved in this torment of hell. Not one glimmer of light, not one ray of warmth, not one trace of God's love, but outer darkness, utter darkness, absolute darkness. To be cut off from every glimmer of God's favor. But as we look upon the horror of the cross, we preach good news, right? Because it's through this willing suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ that we have life. And we have the blessed assurance that Christ already faced judgment day for all those who believe. The judgment day that's appointed for sinners, for all those who believe in Christ, the judgment day has already occurred upon the cross. 
And the darkness that all sinners deserve, for those who believe, the darkness has already been absorbed on the cross. Christ in the place of sinners, the final judgment breaking in upon him. Christ meeting the judge, being condemned, the full penalty of sin being imposed upon him. Christ in his love for his people, willingly bearing it, voluntarily bearing it. And bearing it all the way until he finally says it is finished. He's paid the entire price. There's not a single sin that you still need to try to cover by your own goodness or your penance. It's all paid for. There's no purgatory that remains. There's no list of good things you have to do to make God accept you. There's no things in the past you need to cover over to present yourself to God. Justify. But Christ under this darkness is doing everything for us. Behind the veil. And it would be. A horrible thing for those standing at the cross. That when God gives a sign of cosmic disturbance. That the land goes black. And hearts that are unwilling to consider that this may be the Messiah we've crucified. Something is happening. But those who can just go on mocking and walk away from the cross, deriding Jesus. What what remarkable pride. This event is intense and unforgettable. This darkness is also not only the judgment of God falling on Christ in our place, but it's a mercy of God to awaken hearts and to arrest hearts and to say, do you see that something is happening? We're at the center point of history. The world's going dark. Something has happened here. And yet if it was foolishness for anyone to walk away from the darkness there and to think nothing of the cross of Jesus, how much more foolish would it be When we now have the the full revelation of what has happened, we have the gospel and we have it preached to us. If we would hear these words and be unmoved and walk away and say, no big deal. I'll just continue on in my self-righteousness. No big deal. I'm just going to go on living in my sin. The Son of God has come from heaven to die for sinners. The world should stand up with bright eyes and look, what is this? God would awaken our hearts so we would not have to die in our sin and face that darkness and hang all alone beneath the everlasting wrath of the Lord God in eternal misery. If Satan is tempting you to think your sin is no big deal, you need to stare long and hard at the cross of Jesus can't look at the Son of God in our flesh suffering under this darkness and say sin is no big deal. If sin was no big deal, the Son of God would not be there in our place. And God wants by the gospel to awaken our hearts and say sin is an enormous deal. Sin blots out the light of God's favor. But in Jesus Christ, the light is secured. And that's the final thing I I want to bring to your attention tonight, not just that the gift of the first day has been removed and the judgment of the last day is being imposed on Christ, but through those two things now, the light of the everlasting day has been merited and secured for us, God's people. 
the darkness isn't the end, is it? The sun's going to shine again. In fact, the dark tomb in which Jesus is placed is going to be filled with radiant light as he as he's lifted from the dead and the Father says, I approve your work. You've satisfied my wrath. You have done it all. And that's why Jesus was able to say in John 8, verse 12, Jesus could say, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The light of life. Now it's more, isn't it, than, than a mere creation blessing under which both the elect and the reprobate live. But the light of life is to to know fellowship with God restored. It's to know peace with God. It's to be forgiven. It's to know God as friend and father. It's to know his beaming joy and light shining upon our lives. And God has told us that In the new city, there's no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, Revelation 22. There is a day of everlasting light, an everlasting day. What a glorious home God prepares for his people. A home of luminous love and glowing holiness, strong and secure. The the brilliance of God's smile upon his people for all eternity. Never a day of rain, never a day of clouds. Always the brightness of God's face filling our lives with happiness. Heaven is yours, Jesus says. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What a glorious thing. That's glorious in our dying and that's glorious in our living. That's glorious at death. Can you imagine facing death and not being sure whether your sins are paid for? Facing death and and being uncertain whether the wrath of God remains for you. What a torturous death to have a dirty conscience. To see your body coming to that point of breathing no more but, but... but knowing that on the other side you meet that one that you know exists, the living God. How different for the believer. It's been a sad couple weeks, many ways, and seeing John's home going. And yet, sad for us, but not an eternal sadness, not a Sorrow without comfort. John knew Psalm 36. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. In your light, God, we have the knowledge of our God. In your light we bask in your favor through Jesus Christ. In your light our our sin is eclipsed now and, 
And your blessings fill our soul. In your light, we know there's a pathway home. In your light, we know that to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In your light, we know that we have a city with foundations waiting for us. In your light, we see light. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? And that's our great comfort as we, as we bury another saint. To know it's not the end. But our loss is there again and into the light of the presence of the fellowship of God they go home. But this is not just good news for us at the moment of death. This is good news for our living. This is good news when the trials come. It's good news when, when we remain behind as the grieving family. It's good news when we, when we suffer the conflicts and battles against our sin. It's good news when the world persecutes us. It's good news when we go through a dark night of the soul and we feel like God's nowhere present. It's good news. Christ has suffered. The temple curtain has been torn in two and access has been given. Because then we know that we have the light of life with us everywhere. The Dutch minister I mentioned who suffered in the concentration camp in Nazi Germany tells about the insane pace of life. Get up, hurry, 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 wash yourself, trip over all each other in the bathrooms, eat your meal, get dressed, hurry, 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 you get beaten. And then he says, then I had to get ready for the morning roll call. Finally, a moment of rest. While we marched towards the place of the roll call, my heart sang one psalm after another. A psalm of praise was succeeded by a psalm of lamentation. I needed both, and my heart could sing both in the night of my tormented life. While we stood and rested at the place of the roll call, I had the opportunity to send up my morning prayer to ask my faithful father for strength and for his comforting presence. To suffer as a Christian, able to glorify his father in these conditions, and able to look the world of men and angels square in the face, And then I knew it again. The spectacle in Dachau was for me a joyful day, a feast day in communion with my God. And that was all I needed. Presently, we would march away again, but I could now go on. My tiredness seemed to fade away just a little, and at least I did not feel as exhausted, though I still really was. God was my God, was making true to me the word which he once spoke through his servant Isaiah, He gives power to the faint, and to those who without might he gives strength. Thus, my way was made through these tortures, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the glory that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. Oh, my God, I thank thee that I was always enabled in my tortures to keep looking by faith to Jesus, and that these and that there was not a moment that I did not see him. In his light, we see light. To read of the horrors of a death camp, and to hear the testimony that in the camp of darkness, the light of the Lord shone in the soul, should be an encouragement to us. Our trials that we endure in this life are not meant to condemn us or destroy us, No matter how dark it seems, if we're united to Jesus Christ by faith, 
the light of the Lord, the light of life, is our secured possession. And it doesn't matter ultimately then how far we feel God is away. If we are united to Jesus Christ, then we're not a centimeter away from the very heart of God and all of his love. And the glorious light of Jesus' victory is ours. And God smiles upon us, and he rejoices over us, and he strengthens us, and he carries us. And it was for that that Jesus hung and remained on the cross for those three hours of darkness, suffering the outer darkness for you and for me so that we could have forever the light of the Lord's life. Is that your hope tonight? Can you say that Jesus died for you? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a horrible darkness it will be for those who are outside of Christ. But what a glorious and unimaginable light for those who've been restored to God, who have peace through the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us run to him. Let us hide ourselves in him. Let us give him thanks and let us adore his name, that he was cast out into the darkness so we could be brought into the light of God's love and favor forever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we're humbled before this incomprehensible death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, God, that you give us your word and you give us your spirit, apart from which we would not know or see or believe or trust. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who's still working for us, who comes calling for us, who bids the weary to come and find rest. And we pray, God, that you would grant us that grace to find great joy in our Lord Jesus, to trust in him for our righteousness, and to put away all phony trust in ourselves. Drive away the devil, God, we pray. Plant your seeds deep within us. And we pray, Lord, keep us for that great day of glory and resurrection when the light will shine in all brightness and fill a new heavens and a new earth. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Come quickly. Amen.